Well, this, this morning we are continuing on in our series on the book of Acts, and uh, we've, we've been looking at, at this book, and, and the book of Acts, I don't know how many of you have, have read it thoroughly, read it cover to cover, uh, maybe you read it a number of years ago, and now you're kind of coming back to it as a refresher, but it, it records history, it's really early Christian history, the, the series of the church growing and spreading, and, and so we've been uh, going through these stories over the last couple of weeks and, and just saying how, how people are, are coming to faith, how the Spirit is growing in power, and, and there's a, a number of miracles and conversions, and it's an exciting book. There's a, there's a ton of interesting stuff that's, that's going on. But today's story is beginning in, in chapter 19, verse 23. If you have your Bibles open, that's where you want to be, Acts chapter 19. We're starting in verse 23, and it's, it's a bit of an odd verse it's a crucial verse to the rest of the story because it's, it's kind of a springboard for everything that happens in the rest of the story. But um, as, we'll, as we'll see in a few minutes, it, it, it's a bit different than what we've seen in the past. If we back up a couple of verses earlier, chapter 19, verse 20, we see that the word of the Lord is spreading widely and it's growing in power. And this fits with a lot of the story in Acts. People coming to faith by the thousands, uh, people who were... Uh, possessed by, by evil spirits being released, uh, people growing, people selling land and, and putting at the, at the feet of the disciples, and, and all, these, all these things happening, you get this sense of momentum and growth, and it's a happy story. It makes you feel good. Perhaps you feel even a little bit motivated and excited about all this. But this is just a, a conclusion of one part of the story in Acts. The story continues on. And so in, in chapter 19, verses 20 and 21, uh, Luke, who's the, the author of the book of Acts, he provides us a little bit of details about Paul. And he says that Paul, after this had happened, he's looking at, at traveling to Jerusalem and then later on into Rome, and, and he does that for sure. But in, in the context here, we're still in the city of Ephesus. Now, Ephesus is, is an ancient city, an ancient Greek city, and then it becomes a major Roman city. And if, if you're kind of thinking to yourself, I don't really know where in the world that is, it's in northwest Turkey. It's kind of on the western side of Turkey, just across the Aegean Sea from Athens. So now everyone who's been to Europe, now you know exactly where it is. And this is kind of the, this is kind of the landscape of chapter 19 that we're looking at. But then we come to this verse that I was just talking about. Verse 23 is where our story begins. About this time, about this time there arose a great disturbance about the way. There arose a great disturbance about the way. Now, before we talk about this great disturbance, because that's what pops out to me at least, let's talk about the way. Let's make sure we're clear about what the way is. Because if, if we look at the way now, uh, there's a number of different religious groups, uh, sects and cults that would describe themselves as the way or the, or the, the path to nirvana or to salvation or, or some sort of idea like this. But here in the book of Acts, this is actually what they called the group of disciples the followers of Jesus. They weren't called Christians. They're called Christians for the very first time in Acts chapter 11 in a city called Antioch. But we're here in Ephesus, and this movement is called the way. It's kind of this direction, this path. And we get a sense that this, this movement is, is just that. It, it's it's a, a group of people. It's not a building. It's not one individual. It's kind of this united group of people who are following after Jesus. But the bigger question in this verse is not what the way is, but what's this disturbance? Because the verse is saying that these people, these people united by the way, are bringing about some sort of great disturbance. How could this movement bring about disturbance? 
aren't people of the way, aren't Christians these nice, happy people that, that just make everything better? How could this be so disturbing? Now, whenever I think of the word disturbance, I usually think of bad things. Some people say, I saw that movie and it was disturbing. And you think, ooh, okay, it was gory, unsettling, something negative. Or you could say, you think about people being disturbed, not necessarily from, from uh, something graphic, but, but something that was more of an interruption, right? We talk about that all the time. Don't disturb me. Oh, that's disruptive. I don't want to be disturbed. I get the image of the, of the child pulling on their parent pant leg as, as the parent is, is talking to someone else. Don't disturb me. I'm busy. I'm doing something else. And we get this idea that, that a disturbance is a, a, an interruption of sorts or it's interference of, of something. It's cutting into someone else's space. It's Super Bowl Sunday, so we have to use a football analogy here. If we're thinking about uh, an interference or, or something like that, we, 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 we would say that that's a, a bo- spot of the ball foul. That would be pass interference from a, from a defensive perspective. We could call it pass disturbance, but that would probably wouldn't fly too well. But it's a, it's a crucial play that could, could change the outcome of the game. So we'll watch that later on when all four of you watch the Super Bowl later on because I know it's not a real big cultural thing up, up here. And I, I must say, I was impressed by some of our kids who are wearing their, their Seahawks gear uh, today. That's good to be in the spirit. We didn't quite do it this year, but hey, you know what? We can celebrate the one year that we were there. So uh, we get the understanding again of, of uh, distraction being this, this interference or this interruption of sorts. And as a society, we generally don't like to be disturbed. And if we have any sort of social conscience... We generally don't want to disturb other people. It's generally seen as, as a bad thing. This is why hotels give us the little you know, doorknob flap that says, do not disturb. If you're someone like me, that's the very first thing you do is you put it on there so that you can relax. You don't want anyone knocking on your door. This is why, for those of us that have mobile phones or cell phones or whatever, we put it on vibrator, silent, if we go to a meeting or we go into a, a movie theater. And when someone doesn't do that, we're highly annoyed. We're highly disturbed. By these, by these people. I found out this week, I was looking at my office phone, I have a D&D button. You guys have one of these on your office phone? D&D stands for do not disturb. You push that and then the phone doesn't even ring. You know, you don't even worry about being disturbed by the noise of it. We're obsessed with not being disturbed. And as a society, we take extra precautions to make sure that we removed any sort of possibilities of being disturbed, which is why it's interesting, perhaps even disturbing, that we see here in this verse that the Christians, the followers of the way, are bringing about disturbance in the city of Ephesus. Now, if you're looking at your Bible or on your phone and you say, well, I don't see anything about disturbance, you might have something else. If you're looking at the New Living Translation, it might read, they were brought about serious trouble. Or the message, Eugene Peterson's translation of the, of the scriptures, he says, a huge ruckus. The NRSV says, no little disturbance. If you looked at the Greek and I tried, so this may not be extremely accurate. The Greek says, no small stir. All of these words, you put them together, it kind of sounds like how my dad used to describe the noises that my brother and I were making in the basement growing up. This is no small deal. This is, this is a big noise, a large disturbance. This is very, very unsettling. And this is what happens. Verse 24. A silversmith named Demetrius who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. He called them together, along with the workmen in related trades, and said, Men, 
you know we receive a good income from this business. Now, Demetrius here, he's, he's the character we're first introduced to, and he's a skilled craftsman. And in a sense, he's kind of calling together a, a, a business meeting. It'd be kind of like a guild or a union or, or something like that. So he gets them all t- together, and, and the, they're all in the business of making shrines or idols to this goddess named Artemis. Now, we're going to put a picture up there on the screen of Artemis. This is Artemis. And uh, if this is a, a Greek god... Her Roman name is Diana, but it's essentially it's the same, same goddess, just two different names from, from the traditions. She's the, the daughter of Zeus, and as the legend goes, she fell out of heaven. Zeus kind of dropped her down, and she, she landed there on earth, and they thought this is the divine being. This is the goddess. Now, historians will say well, it was probably a meteor, and, and it kind of looked like something, and then they kind of crafted other things, and then here, here we have this god. But and Ephesus, she was huge. Artemis was a big, big deal. And they had a, a temple there. It's called uh, the Temple of Artemis. And actually, this was one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. This is huge for their culture that they were seeing. Uh, Artemis was kind of the guardian of Ephesus. She was the, the lady of Ephesus. And so this had huge implications for the economics of the city, obviously for, for the religion of the city and, and the political power and all this sort of things. And people would travel from other regions once a year, to pay honor or homage to Artemis. It's kind of like Mardi Gras, probably, probably what we see down in, in New Orleans. This is, this is kind of what they would do, huge party and celebration all in the name of Artemis. And so Demetrius and his tradesmen, uh, they're in the business of making idols, silver shrines paying homage to Artemis. And so, so that's, the, that's the context of what's happening here, and that's who this goddess is. Verse 26 This is Demetrius who continues on in his explanation. You see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. There is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited. And the goddess herself, who was worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. So from what Demetrius has said at least, we find out he's not too fond of this person, Paul. Paul, who's leading this movement, who is is bringing people to faith, he doesn't like him. And from what I can see, he's got three beefs with him. These are kind of his arguments against Paul. First, he says, Paul claims that his teaching is leading people astray. So Paul is, 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 is telling people about Jesus. People are being converted. And, and he's saying, well, Paul is, is leading people astray. Now, for, for people of Paul's movement, and for people here today as well who, who would believe in, in the Lord Jesus Christ and, and have allegiance to him, they would say, well, but I would agree with that, that, that anything that can be created is not worthy of being worshipped. We see a couple of, of instances in the book of Acts where, where Stephen, Paul, others, they talk about God being the creator and the son of God, Jesus, being, being the redeemer. And, and there is no creator of the creator. That is God. And so if you can create something with your hands, how in the world is that worthy of, of giving worship to? And, and so obviously, uh, Demetrius is not too fond of Paul's teaching because, I mean, that's what he does. He's creating these idols. So secondly, he says, if, if Paul's teaching continues, it's leading people astray. But if it, if it continues, well, we're basically going to suffer in our work. Our trade's going to suffer. And this is just pure economics. It doesn't 
doesn't take a, a very smart person to figure this out. If lots of people are worshiping the gods and lots of people want to buy them, well, then these tradespeople have a lot of jobs. If they don't, well, maybe they don't make much of an income or they have to find another profession. But then he, he really uh, kind of solidifies his argument by his third point, and that is that Artemis will be robbed of her divinity. If Paul continues to, to teach these things, then Artemis herself is going to be stripped of her divinity and, and what is that to us as a city of Ephesus? This is her city. And so it's hard to know uh, how loyal Demetrius is to Artemis, or maybe he's just very savvy and he realizes, well, if I, if I stir up some sort of cultural value here, then, then I get all these people who are going to get excited about that. And they do. It sends the city into an uproar. And so we see in the next verse, verse 28, when the, when the tradespeople heard this, when the men heard this, they were furious and they began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The men seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and all of them rushed into the theater together. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul's, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. So, this is what happens. Tradespeople get all upset. They go in an uproar. They're yelling, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And then other people get into this. And the demonstration, this, this kind of uh, group of people that are all excited about this, it gains legs. And, and they go into this, this theater. And you might think, that's really weird. Why, why would it happen? And, and here's, a, here's a picture. This is the great theater of, of Ephesus, which is believed this is where this demonstration took place. Well, in our society, if we have a, a private grievance, a family mam, a matter, some sort of interaction with someone, we, we kind of settle that in our own account. But in antiquity, they took them to the public realm. So if there was some sort of, of small feud going on, well, hey, let's, let's go tell the rest of the city about this. And people would come around and you would actually uh, get city officials that would come and it would turn into this, this public realm. And, and that's what we have here at this theater. And this theater, this, these are the remains here, so you could go to Ephesus if you so choose to, and you could sit there and you could think about this story or anything else you wanted to. Apparently, it held about 25,000 people there. So, I mean, this is, this is big time, and, and this is what's happening there. But the interesting thing, of not only that they go to this theater, is that we see here that Paul is not allowed to go. His disciples, apparently they realize that there's danger lurking, and so they tell Paul he needs to stay in hiding. He shouldn't get involved. And even more interesting than that, though, is there's city officials. There's people that have a lot of power in the government, and they send a warning to Paul as well. And so we, we get this understanding that, that the way is gaining legitimacy. There, there's people now in the government who are protecting Paul. Sure, we, we've got Demetrius and his friends that are really upset by this, but there's very, very important people who understand uh, that Paul and, and the, these group of, of followers of Christ should be protected, that they're actually allies. And this is a, this is a pretty, big, pretty big event in the history of, of the growth of the church. Here's what happens, verse 32. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some were shouting another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. That's where I would enter the punchline, but nothing's coming right now. Verse 33, the Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander to the front and they shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people. But when they realized he was a Jew, 
they shouted in unison for about two hours, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So we're going to take the next 20 minutes to do the same just to get, no. So, so you have to, you have to feel bad. At least I do. I feel terrible for Alexander. He's with his friends and his buddies kind of push him forward. Hey, hey, that was your chance. Silence the crowd. Talk to them. And he finally gets up there and then they shout him down for two hours. Like talk about a, that's a slap in the face. That's a rough crowd. And, and what, we, what we get a sense for is, is the Jews, like the Christians as well, these are not people who worship idols. So if you're, uh, if you're loyal to Artemis and a, a city person there in Ephesus, and you recognize that the, someone coming up and trying to speak is a Jew, you don't want to hear a Jew talk about this at all. Because what would they say anything good about idol worship in Artemis? So they shot down Alexander, and, and what we get is, we get more shouting for a very, very lengthy amount of time. And then our story finishes what, with what I would say would be an unlikely hero. It's the city clerk. This is what happens in, in verse 35. The city clerk quieted the crowd and said, Fellow Ephesians, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the garden of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image which fell from heaven? Sounds like a politician, huh? Therefore... Since these facts are undeniable, you ought to calm down and not do anything rash. If you have brought these men here, though they have neither neither robbed temples or blasphemed our goddess, if then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. They can press charges. If there is anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. As it is, we're in danger of being charged with rioting because of what happened today. In that case, we would not be able to account for this commotion since there is no reason for it. And verse 41, after he said this, he dismissed the assembly. And so ends chapter 19. So ends the story. That's it. And it kind of sounds, it kind of sounds like a bit of a history story, just like, just something you would read out of, I don't know, some book that talked about something that happened. And, and I don't know, I, I, when I read this story, I think that's, that's it? Like, what, what, do we do with, what do we do with this story? I love reading stories in, in the Bible and thinking, oh, wow, look at that argument. This, look, what, look, there's a clear point right here, and here's an application. Jesus said this, so I should probably do this. Uh, the character in this story did that, and that was a terrible decision, so I, I shouldn't do that, or I should pray about this, or, or plan on this, or forgive this person. And here, we basically just have a story about this disturbance of some kind. Demetrius and his friends, they go into a riot, and the people shout for a number of hours, and then the city clerk says, hey, stop it. Rome's going to get upset if they know we're rioting with no reason. If you want to press charges, do it. Otherwise, go home, and people go home. End of story. They kind of think, well, what, what do we do with this? What's going on? But as, as people who follow the scriptures, we have to say to ourselves, well, there's got to be a point here somewhere. Why would Luke include this story? He must have had a purpose for doing it. And I think it comes back to verse 23, this verse that we opened up with. And I think it has to do with this character of Demetrius. What was so disturbing about the way? Why did this whole riot start in the first place? Why did Demetrius feel threatened? Why did he take all these actions against Paul and followers of the way? Well, I think it's fair to connect 
Demetrius' anger, his hostility towards the way, and his hunger for wealth. There's a good amount of information that we get in his speech. He seems pretty savvy. He understand, we understand that his primary motivation seems to be his, his craft. Luke gives us a good description about who he's talking to, what he does to gain money, and, and what's in it for him to lose should this, this movement of Christianity continue. And I think we could point to the words of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew, where he says, no one can serve two masters. He'll either love one and hate the other, or he'll be devoted to one and he'll despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And perhaps we could look at, at Demetrius and think, maybe this is a bit of a case study here in Demetrius, where we've got the spirit of the God moving, uh, we've got the gospel being declared, we have people coming to Christ, but then we have Demetrius, and Demetrius is just, he's loyal to his wealth. He's loyal to, to the culture. And so we kind of have this sad story of this guy who creates a, a riot because he cannot submit, he cannot be obedient to the gospel. Uh, maybe, maybe that's what this story is about. And I think then we could say, well, if he has this, this devotion for greed, then maybe his worship of Artemis was, was just a cover for his greed. Might make you wonder what your cover for greed is. I could think about the, the different masks that I put on to, to kind of hide the greed in my own life. This is the, the conclusion that one commentator by the name of William Willimon comes to. He says this, the worship of Artemis is the syncretism or the combination of idolatrous religious devotion and economic interest. It's a wonderful opportunity for Luke to comment upon the peril of vested interests to the gospel. Artemis has her devotees in every town, even today. I think it's a good word. I think if we're honest with ourselves, we all would recognize that greed is a beast that is hard to tame. Back in the days of, of Artemis and Demetrius, here today, we're surrounded by greed. It's a good word. But I think the point of this story might go a little bit further than that. Because it's extremely likely to think that Demetrius was motivated by greed, that he was extremely greedy. But was he disturbed by his greed? Because Luke tells us, Luke tells us that he was disturbed by the way. He was disturbed by the teachings of Paul. Now, Paul was preaching the gospel. We know that from the whole book of Acts. We know that here in Ephesus. Paul's greatest ambition was to make the gospel message known everywhere that he went. But the gospel message itself is not what disturbed Demetrius. He was actually disturbed by how the gospel message was changing the people around him. It didn't have to do with the gospel message of, of Jesus Christ being the Son of God and, and him dying for sins and being resurrected in, into life. What we see in this story is that he's actually threatened. He's threatened that by the people who no longer want to buy idols. He's threatened by the change that's happened of these people who have accepted the gospel and choose to live for Jesus. That's the shocking part of this story, is that he's disturbed by the change that's happening by those who choose to follow the message of the gospel. Now, if there was no power in the gospel, I don't think Demetrius would really care. Who cares if, if someone decides, you know what? Sure, this Jesus guy, he, he's the son of God. He, he rose from the dead. But you know what? Whatever. Artemis is cool too. Let's buy three idols. I mean, I mean really, what, 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 there'd be no, no threat to Demetrius if that was the response. But what happened is, is there was power. There is power. 
in following after Jesus Christ. This same power, the Scriptures tell us the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is the power of the Holy Spirit, the power that comes to all who believe and follow after Him. And people began to change. And when these people began to change their ways, when these people began to move with this power of, the, of God, that created a bit of disturbance. That had an impact just not on their own lives. It had an impact on the entire community of Ephesus. This is what Jesus called being the salt of the earth. Jesus says followers would be like the salt of the earth. Salt is a, is a seasoning ingredient. It enriches the food. It preserves the food. And what it does is it, it, it exacts change outside of itself. It goes all throughout the meat or whatever else it's seasoning. Jesus also said that his followers are to be a light of the world. Light, it evokes change outside of itself. There's darkness around it, and the darkness is exposed by this light shining all around it. But for those that don't like the taste of salt, for those that don't want to see a light, salt and light are threats. It's a disturbance. It's an interruption of what they're currently doing or what they're trying to pursue. It interferes with the darkness. Now, some will allow the light to expose the darkness. And we have many stories of that in the books of, of Acts. People who, who throw off their former life who said, I'm tired of living this way. The darkness leads to death. I will walk towards the light. I will surrender myself to Jesus. But you know what? We have a number of stories that are just the opposite. We have people who turn away from the light and say, I don't want the light. I'd rather move towards the darkness. I would like to remain in the darkness. And the fact of the gospel story is, and what we see in these stories in the book of Acts, is that people have their choice. They can choose to embrace the light. They can choose to turn their back to it. And we really, in some sense, we can't force anyone to do it. Followers of Christ must, can't say, you need to make this decision, or let me make this decision for you. That's not our job. But you know what our job is? Our job is to be salty. That's what Jesus tells us to be. Our job is to have salt, to remain salty. Our job is to be agents of light. And whether those around us choose to repent or whether they choose to riot, that's up to them. Our job is to remain salty. And when we get a bunch of salty Christians together, when you get a bunch of people exuding light, you know what happens? It creates a disturbance. It disturbs the darkness. Our job is to be as salty as possible. Now, there's a lot of disturbing things in our world today. I'm guessing the followers of the way back in the day of Ephesus were disturbed of, of all, the, all the honor and worship that was given to Artemis. And we look around our world today, and I'm sure you can think of a lot of the areas of darkness in our world. It could be human trafficking. It could be uh, the people who are alienated. It, it could be the, the pornography industry that racks up billions upon billions and billions of dollars. All around us, there is darkness. And we're called to be agents of light. And our loyalty to Christ will actually expose the darkness. Now, this doesn't mean that, that right away uh, there's going to be this, this radical transformation because of how that happens, because these people can still make their choice. That They can embrace the light. They can turn their backs on the light. That's not our job. Our job is simply to be agents of light. Our job is to be the salt of the earth. So how 
bright is your life right now? What's your salt content in your life? Are you saltier today than you were salty two years ago? Are you getting brighter? There's a, there's a story before the one that, that we are looking at this morning about a group of, of followers of Christ and how they, they turned away from the darkness and they confessed and they repented and their lives were changed. Uh, this is just in, uh, in Acts chapter 19 once again. This is in verse 18, 19, and 20, which we had looked at earlier. And it's a group of people who have, have repented and they're following Jesus. And some of these people practiced sorcery. Some of these individuals were involved in, in witchcraft and spells and sorcery and all these things. And they felt compelled. When, when they repented, they felt compelled to take their scrolls, which I don't know. I don't really know anything about witchcraft scrolls. So I don't know if they had spells on them or drawings. I don't really know. But what Luke tells us is these were extremely valuable they took their scrolls publicly, they piled them all together, and they had a big bonfire. They burned all these scrolls together. And the estimated value of these scrolls is huge. It's way more than I have in my retirement fund. It's probably more than you have either, which probably isn't saying much in today's world. This was a lot of money. This wasn't saying like, I'm going to take my CD collection and burn it because it's worth 80 bucks anyways, and I can't sell it on Craigslist. This is massive, massive, massive amounts of money. And I'm not advocating that we go through all of our stuff right now and do this. But I think that Luke specifically talks about the value of these goods because it's, it's quite a contrast between Demetrius. We have a, a group of people who have repented of their sins. They've turned their back on their former life. And we have another individual who just looks through the life through what he can make, his allegiance to money. Their changed lives made such a difference that they are willing to give up everything. They were willing to surrender everything so they could follow after Jesus. And then the action that, that, that prompted this is they confessed their sins. They did it publicly. They burned these scrolls and they confessed what they had done, what their former life looked like. And they turned away from this and they lived their lives. And because of that, we get that verse. Chapter 19, verse 20, that we began with. The word of God spread widely, and it grew in power. The Bible says that when we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And there's power in confession. There's power not only in our own forgiveness, but there's power in the growth and, and the spreading of the Spirit. And we have it, there's in their story where these people are, are confessing and the, and the Spirit of God is growing and growing and it grows so much and there's so much brightness and there's so much salt that it actually starts to disturb those who are not living according to the ways of God. Their changed lives made such a difference that the way became a threat. The darkness was actually disturbed. And we have the chance today to do the, to do the same thing. This is the action that I'd like to call all of you to. We have a chance to confess our sins. If we want to be agents of light, if we want to be people who are salty, we cannot remain in our sin. We cannot just have a blind light, uh, or eye to, to how we have lived or how we're currently living in sin. We need to examine ourselves. We need to look and see, is, is there, there anything in my life that is distancing me from God? Because if we continue to live in that, how can we be a bright light? 
How can we be salty to those around us? How can the darkness be threatened if there's darkness in our own lives? And so we're going to have a time where, where we can confess. And this isn't going to be a time of a public confession. This is going to be a time of, of private confession. But if you feel in your time of, of praying and analyzing uh, your, your life with God, if you feel like that's a step you need to take, then, then please talk to, to myself, talk to Pastor Brad. We'll see what an appropriate time is for you uh, potentially to confess your sins in front of a, a group of people. But the communion tables are open. Our band is, is going to, to come up, and, and we're going to have a time of reflection. We're going to look at our lives. We're going to examine the things in our life, and, and we're going to, to confess our sins to God. We're going to, to look at our lives for, for the areas of darkness in our life so that we can make sure that we receive the grace of God, that he will cleanse us of unrighteousness as we admit our faults. We have a couple of people at each of our communion tables. A communion table is, is open to all who profess the lordship of Jesus and are in right relationship with him. When Jesus shared the Last Supper meal, the Passover meal with his disciples, he said, do this in remembrance of me. The bread representative of his body and, and the, the juice the wine representative of the blood that was shed for all those who believe. And so we do this today as a remembrance, the remembrance of the fact that we were once in the darkness, that we still have darkness that lingers in our life. But when we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And when we do that, when we confess with the power of Jesus, the power of the Spirit grows and it spreads and it makes an impact on our world.